Let's take a moment and pray before we hear from the Lord's voice in Scripture today. Lord Jesus, open our hearts. Open our hearts so that we can learn from you. Uh, learn things that we deeply want to know, even if we don't realize it. Open our hearts so that we can learn from you truths that are deep enough to change us and our world in exactly the place where the change is needed and with exactly the, the degree of kindness that is required. Lord, do surgery on our hearts and do it with compassion. Bring about real healing, we pray. Amen. So we're uh, exploring the book of Romans together for a few weeks. We're talking about the concept of wrapping our hearts around something real. I wonder if you're familiar with the concept of wrapping, not the hip-hop variety. All that worth its own conversation. I'm talking about the vinyl wrapping that you put on a car or a truck or a bus, you know, kind of turn it into a moving billboard. If you get it just right, if you take this product that's meant to wrap around and, and, and it's designed to go around a specific shape, if you match those up perfectly, you get a great result, something like this. Or even better, something like this. Right? So it's just made, it's perfect for that spot. And it looks beautiful when, when that wrapping process happens in just the right way. But if you take that wrap, it's designed for a very specific shape, and you wrap it around something that's the wrong shape, you get a really weird kind of um, <laughs> distortion. Right? Things start to fragment and break in lines where they're not meant to. And like some of you are going to go home scarred now. <laughs> this is not how this process is meant to turn out. Right? The human heart works like that. Our hearts are not meant to, um, to exist on their own. They were made to be wrapped around a specific shape. A shape a shape that gives life and love, the shape of something, the shape of someone who is the source of life and love for all the world. When our hearts are wrapped around that, the result is amazing. But when we wrap our hearts around something else, a shape they weren't meant for, distortion results. A couple of ways that the heart of humanity is distorted reflected in the book of Romans, as the Apostle Paul began to write the Christian community in Rome, he had to deal with problems of division and arrogance. And in that context, he slows down to talk about the resurrection of Jesus. Because it turns out that um, the very real way to solve these very real problems of the human heart and the ways it gets distorted is the new life that comes from the resurrected Jesus. So Megan's going to come read for us from a couple parts of Romans where the apostle talks about the resurrection. 
Today's scripture reading is from the book of Romans, chapters 1 and 6. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God, the gospel he promised beforehand through his prophets in the holy scriptures regarding his son, who according to the flesh was a descendant of David, and who through the spirit of holiness was declared the Son of God in power by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. Through him we received grace and apostleship to call all the Gentiles to the obedience that comes from faith for his name's sake. Now, if we died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him, For we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot die again. Death no longer has mastery over him. The death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. In the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. The Christian writer C.S. Lewis wrote a lot of books. One of them is called The Horse and His Boy. The Horse and His Boy has a lot of main characters in it. Two are horses, then there's a boy and a girl, and then there's a lion called Aslan. One of the horses is named Bree. He talks about Aslan a lot. Now, C.S. Lewis wrote these books so that children could come to know Jesus, but maybe know him in a different way than they had encountered him before. So Aslan the lion is the character who represents Jesus in the story. Bree is a horse who thinks he knows all about Aslan. He's heard stories about Aslan, Jesus, from when he was just a pony. And um, he likes to boast of that sometimes. So main character named Erebus, young girl, uh, asks him some questions about it one day. He's like, why you don't like lions in general? Horses are afraid of lions. Why do you always talk about this lion named Aslan? Why do you call him a lion? And Bree, you can imagine him puffing out his horsey chest and sticking back his horsey ears and raising his horsey nose up in the air and looking down at Erebus. And he starts to say, well, you know, you're, you're just a young girl. You wouldn't understand. Of course, he's not a real lion. When people call him a lion, they're just saying he's as strong as a lion. Because if he was a real lion, how silly that would be. He'd have to have paws and, and he'd have a tail and whiskers. And about this point, uh, Bree starts to panic. He starts to feel something tickling his ear. And it's the whiskers of Aslan, the real lion, who's walked up behind him while he's giving this speech. C.S. Lewis is writing a children's book, but it's about very grown-up topics. And one of those topics is, is the fact that it's easy to assume that Christianity isn't real. That, that it's a game that's played with metaphors and symbols and um, words claims about spiritual things instead of real things. Uh, That Christians are people who talk about lions when they don't mean lions. Um, But it turns out in the early Christian community, 
um, the instinct was when we're facing real world problems, we need a solution that's just as real. And so in, in digging down to address problems of division and arrogance, the Apostle Paul reaches for something real. He, he talks about the resurrection of Jesus. He doesn't play a game with words. He's talking about a real person, the Son of God, who became a human being. He came into our world, took on flesh and blood, who, who actually died, and then who actually was given new life by God's Holy Spirit, a life so strong that it broke the power of evil to tempt the human soul and lead it astray. And it broke the power of death over the human body. Jesus once could be tempted by sin, never again. Jesus once could be killed, never again, because he's been resurrected. The resurrection of Jesus is real, and because of that, it becomes the path to real solutions to very real problems in our world. Let's talk about how the resurrection of Jesus is the path to love. We have to understand something about the division that was facing the church that Paul was writing to in Rome. You hear him mention the, the gospel, that, that, that God has promised a gospel through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, and that gospel was about his son. And, uh, and then Paul says, hey, this, this gospel is something that we, apostles, received, and, and, and our calling is to make it known throughout the whole world. Uh, we received through him grace and apostleship to call all the Gentiles to the obedience that comes from faith. Now, you and I hear the word Gentile, and in English that means people who aren't Jewish. But the word for Gentiles is just the word for nations. That we've got this calling to make this gospel, whatever it is, known to every nation. Not just the Jewish nation, but every nation. What is that gospel? It's good news. It's the story. Well, here's how we summarized it recently. The story of the true God who made the world. And the plan he has to share life and love with that world through his son, Jesus. It's a story that anybody, anywhere, anytime can become a part of by saying yes to Jesus. All that he is, all that he does, all that he offers. And here's Paul saying to this church in Rome, hey, we have this calling to take this good news about this God and, and this Jesus and this kind of life and love to the whole world. Specifically, by the end of Romans, you find out Paul is saying, we need to take this westward towards Spain. But we can't because the church has become distracted by division. The church has forgotten how to love across this boundary of Jew and Gentile. Jewish Christians and, and Christians from other backgrounds have become divided. And each of them is saying to the other, you are what is wrong with Christianity today. You are what is wrong with the church. If you all would come over to our way of seeing things and doing things, then everything would be right. You can hear Paul begin to hint at this division, even as he describes Jesus. Let me read us again what he says. This gospel, this good news, is a message about God's Son 
who was descended from David according to the flesh. Right? Here's Paul saying, you know what? Jesus' Jewish background is really important. Knowing that through his adopted father, Joseph, he is linked to the royal line of King David himself. That's really important. So you Gentile Christians who are saying that it's irrelevant to be a Jewish Christian from a Jewish background, you're wrong. Jesus' Jewish background is really important. But if you're over here saying, yeah, you tell them, they're wrong. Paul goes on to say, but guess what? That's not the whole story. If all you know about Jesus is, is that kind of ethnic and religious background and this fact that he's tied into the royal line of David, that's not enough. He was also, verse 4 says, declared to be the Son of God in power. How? By his resurrection from the dead. Do you hear Paul starting to puncture that division already? And say, if, if you're over on this side saying this is important, you're right, but it's not the whole story. If you're over on this side saying, well, that part is unimportant, you're wrong. Even the way he describes the resurrection of Jesus is designed to say, that's the path to love. This is the thing that can break down the barriers of division that are threatening the church. Now, here's an interesting thing for people who live in the 21st century. This kind of division, today we might call it polarization. It was exacerbated by politics. The Roman emperor Claudius reigned from 40, well, earlier than this. In the year 49 AD, he expelled all Jews from the city of Rome. The Roman Empire wasn't keeping score at that point to say, well, we know the difference between Jews and Jewish Christians. So anybody who had a Jewish background got expelled from the city, including a lot of Christians. A few years later, Claudius died. People came back to the city. The Apostle Paul writes this letter three years after that return. Three years after politics had kind of inflamed the division between these two camps. And here's Paul saying, you know what can fix this? You know what can heal it when a world gets broken and divided and the politicians just make it worse? You know what can fix that? I know what can fix it. Let's talk about how Jesus was declared to be the Son of God with power when the Holy Spirit brought him back from the dead. The solution to that kind of division, the path to love, is knowing that Jesus is the Lord not just of some, but of all. Right? He was declared the Son of God in power by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ, our Lord. He's not just the Lord of one little tribe, of one little group who has everything right and everybody else has it wrong. He's the only one who got it all right. All of us got it wrong. All of our hearts have been distorted. And he is the Lord. If you live under the shadow of death, then what Jesus came to do is for you. That's a universal shadow. He's a living Lord. Not just for some, but for all. And he makes the power of his resurrection available so that the world can be changed as a result. 
Um, read a book a couple of years ago by these two writers, Salim Munayer and Lisa Loden. They are Christian authors. About two-thirds of the way through their book was called Through My Enemy's Eyes. They say Christ's resurrection means that we have power from his life to, to be catalysts of transformational change in this world. Jesus is raised from the dead, and because of that, we have power to spark change in this world. Now, it's not so surprising to hear two Christian writers saying things like that, talking about the resurrection of Jesus, talking about Jesus, talking about wanting the world to be changed because of Jesus. Christian writers say that kind of stuff. It's what we're supposed to do. It's what we're supposed to say. It's what we're supposed to talk about. But when you know the background of these two writers, you might be a little more surprised. Uh, Salim Munayer is a Palestinian Christian of Arab descent. And Lisa Loden is an Israeli Jewish Christian. In her context, she'd be called a Messianic Jew. If you're reading the news right now, you'll understand that they come from an environment, political, ethnic environment, that has told them since birth that they're supposed to hate each other. They're not supposed to be close friends, as they are. They're not supposed to be united around anything, but they are. Here are two people saying the world is divided, the world is fragmented, the world is broken. And we know that we're supposed to hate one another if we follow the script of that world. But the resurrection of Jesus has rewritten the script. And people who are supposed to be divided, who are supposed to be mortal enemies, can learn to love each other because Jesus is a living Lord. The resurrection is not a spiritual metaphor. It's a flesh and blood reality that lets flesh and blood people love other flesh and blood people even when that is incredibly difficult to do. The resurrection of Jesus is the path to love, not because we are good at loving people, but because he is a living Lord. Can we say for a moment that's also a path to humility? There's a second issue that the Apostle Paul had to deal with. Actually, lots of them. We'll survey them over the next few weeks. But today we'll talk about arrogance. In chapter 6, we heard Megan read these, these words that say, you know what, if, if, if you're a believer in Jesus, you died with Christ, and so you also live with him. The fundamental pattern of his life is crucifixion and resurrection. If you have faith in him, then by faith, he has united you to himself so that everything that he did, you get credit for. <laughs> Everything that was done to him was done to you. If he was crucified, you were crucified and you died with him. And if the Spirit raised him from the dead, you were raised too. And one day when he returns, you'll get to fully enjoy that resurrection, which he is already experiencing. 
But some of the power of that change can begin even now. Why is the Apostle Paul having to say all those things? Aren't those things that the Roman church already kind of knew? Didn't somebody teach them that in the uh, you know, membership class before they all got baptized? The answer is yes, but something had happened that made them need to hear it again. And it's the intrusion of this spirit of arrogance. It shows up as you read the very first verse of Romans chapter 6. Paul is saying, look, I know what some of you are going to say about the kind of Christian message that I preach. I want to go preach it in Spain, and I want you to send me there, but right now you're too busy trying to prove that you got it right to be interested. And so you're asking questions like this. Should we continue sinning so that grace can multiply? Paul is like a parent standing between a teenage daughter and a teenage son. And the daughter is on one side, the Jewish Christian daughter, saying, you know what, Dad? If you give him the keys to the car, he's going to drive wherever he darn well pleases. The keys are marked grace. If you tell them, those Christians who, who didn't come from a proper Jewish background, knowing the commandments of God and knowing how to live a set-apart life from the rest of the world, if you tell people, That by the grace of Jesus, not by anything they do, they can have new life in him. They're just going to do whatever they please. Don't give them the keys to the car. You have no idea where they're going to drive this thing. And the son's standing over here saying, hey, dad, make her be quiet. And go ahead and give me the keys so I can drive wherever I darn well please. (laughs) It's two forms of arrogance. Right? One is kind of a group arrogance saying, but you don't understand, God. We are the ones who are really committed. We are the ones who will really do this life right. And we can't trust them to be really committed. Kind of arrogant, isn't it? We're right, they're wrong. Will you show them that we're right and they're wrong? God, that's why you exist, to show the whole world who's right and who's wrong. And we're the right ones. Well, that's one form of arrogance. It's kind of a group form. And then there's this very individual form that says, you know what? It's up to me to live however I can make a path. Autonomy. I'll just find my own way. I'll do what I think is right. I'll do my best. And uh, if sometimes what I think is right is something you think is wrong, well, get over it. If I do some things that I think are right, but your God says they're wrong, uh, I don't really care. I got to find my own way. I got to be true to myself. I got to carve out this identity for me. That's a different kind of arrogance, but you hear the arrogance in all of it. And this is why Paul has to say, you know what? We We need a dose of humility that will only come It will only come from being united to the death and resurrection of Jesus. It's really hard to love somebody else if you're spending your whole life proving that we're the committed ones and they aren't. 
or proving. The identity I'm carving out for myself is the right one, and nobody else has a right to critique it. It's hard to love other people when we, or I, am the center of the universe. So I have to be united to Christ and begin to die this death that says I'm gonna die to having, I'm gonna die to the need to prove that I'm right. I'm gonna die to the need to prove that I'm the committed one and everybody else is wrong. And I'm gonna die to the need to say, I get to define who I want to be. I'm gonna hand all that over to Jesus and say, Jesus, your crucifixion and your resurrection are all that I need. I don't need to prove that I'm right. I just need to know that I belong to you. I don't need to carve out my own identity. My identity is shaped by being united to the crucified and resurrected Lord. Teach me humility. Teach me how to die to myself so that I can live for something bigger than me and live for someone besides just me. Jesus' resurrection is real. It gives arrogant people freedom to die to ourselves and begin to experience what Paul Miller calls a tiny resurrection. When you realize that death, this is from his book called A Loving Life. I bought it when he was here with us in January on the book table. I just started reading it this week. It's amazing. Can I recommend it to you? A Loving Life. Warning ahead of time, don't read it unless you're ready for heavy doses of resurrection, joy, life, and freedom. And understand that Paul has the courage to lead you through crucifixion and death to self (laughs) to get you to that resurrection, joy, and freedom. When you realize that death to yourself is the center of love, a tiny resurrection begins in your heart. Why? Because we're joined to the life of Jesus. Romans 6, 8. If you're trusting Jesus, you have died with him and you will also live with him. The life he's living right now, he's beginning to share with you. He'll return one day and complete the process. But he's already beginning to share that with you. And that means you share in his power. Verse 11 says, you are alive to God in Christ Jesus. Verse 10 said that that Jesus died to sin, but now he lives to God. Jesus is living for someone other than himself. And when you trust him, you get connected to that power to live for something bigger than yourself for someone else besides yourself. I think one of my great fears about Christianity and being a Christian myself, being a Christian pastor, is that people will assume that Christianity is about playing games with words. Like we're all a bunch of little brie horses running around, proud of how good we are at playing games with words about a lion who isn't really a lion. 
that we're Christianity is a place where you come to get better than other people at playing the right game with the right words. We're better at the, uh, than the rest of the world at playing games with words like Jesus, words like resurrection, words like humility and love. So uh, come join us and get better with us and show the rest of the world that you're better than them at playing the best game. That's not it at all, is it? Um, Christianity doesn't work because Christians are better. Christianity is about the fact that Jesus is more alive than anyone else in the whole universe. He is more alive than all the life that is in us put together. And he is willing to share that life with people who need it so that people who are better at division than at love and better at arrogance than humility can actually begin to experience real change. Not instantaneous change, not perfect change. It's not change that's ever going to be complete in this lifetime. But Jesus is a living Lord who is more alive than the rest of the universe put together. And anybody, anywhere, anytime who says yes to him can begin to change because they can begin to share in that life that he gives. You take a minute, that's pretty good news. I think we ought to give thanks for it. Let me lead us in prayer. Lord Jesus, I know my own heart when I get an amazing gift, I tend to want to keep it. Um, my first thought is not how I can share it. But you have received the gift of resurrection life from the Holy Spirit. And your first thought is, how can I share this with the nations, with the whole world, with anybody, anywhere, anytime who trusts me. Lord Jesus, we thank you for that generosity in your heart and spirit. And we thank you that you don't play games with us and you don't want us to play games with you. When we talk about your resurrection, we're not talking about a myth or an idea or a legend or a metaphor. We are talking about the fact that you laid cold in a tomb for three days. And then you rose again to break the power of death, not only over your own body, but one day when you return to completely defeat death and drive it out of your good world. Draw us closer to you, Lord Jesus, no matter where we stand in relation to you in this moment whether we feel really close to you or feel distant from you or feel like in the end all of this is a game, would you draw us closer? Help us to take the next step toward you. Amen.